It was a cold first week of spring, typical upstate New York, but that didn't stop the opening of some local ice cream stands and summer favorites. We all know warmer weather's in the cards soon, so why not enjoy a soft serve cone while we're waiting? Coming up on this episode, we'll go over the week's top headlines. Everybody loves the bills, but there is great consternation over this level of state support. We'll go for a walk down Albany's historic Pearl Street. A lot of the buildings on Pearl Street, you can see their past in them. And we'll talk about the premiere of a film looking at the life and work of Dr. Tom Little, an optometrist from Del Mar, New York, who spent 30 years working in Afghanistan before his tragic death. To work in a place like Afghanistan, you, you have to expect the unexpected. Don't be surprised by the unexpected. In the last year, I think everything that has happened over in Afghanistan that we all witnessed on the news, for me, has only made the story even have greater relevance. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. All right, we are here with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler to go over the top headlines this week. We'll start with state government. Now, at this time of year, there is always a ton of stories to talk about that are coming out of our Capitol Bureau, namely, uh, will we have an on-time budget? But I think one of the ones that rose to the top this week and has kind of a an appeal that's a little bit wider than just what happens here in Albany is the consternation uh, over the fate of the Buffalo Bills. So could you tell us what happened there? Well, or the fate of the Buffalo Bills new stadium or proposed new stadium. Now, this has been uh, a subject that's been knocked around Albany for quite a while. The notion that New York State would help out with the construction of a new stadium for the Bills. The Bills' current stadium is uh, a little bit uh, gritty, shall we say. And uh, of course, the the threat behind all of this is that the Bills, the the Pagulas, the family that um, owns the Bills, might pack up and take it elsewhere, as has been bandied about, though not so much in recent years. And of course, the Bills are coming off a pretty terrific season, even though it ended somewhat tragically with the coin flip that the NFL has now thought uh, of again. But anyway, I digress. The bottom line is that the plan, the details of the plan, which came out earlier this week, really, uh, as the clock ticked down to the need to the deadline for the state to resolve the state budget, is that the state would kick in roughly a billion dollars over the course of the 30-year lease that um, the bills would, would hold on this facility. The proposal includes $600 million in covered costs um, for construction, and then an additional 350 or more that would run over the course of the lease on maintenance, repair, and upkeep. Now, obviously, that's a, a, that's a big chunk of change. And advocates for, especially progressive advocates, are saying that that is 
an appalling giveaway when so many New Yorkers are, uh, you know, right on the margin when the state cannot afford to pay uh, decent wages to uh, healthcare workers, home healthcare workers. And even Republicans are saying that, you know, the state can get a better deal. Everybody loves the bills, but there is great consternation over this level of state support. Now, Governor Kathy Hochul's administration responds by saying that, well, actually, if you look at recent stadium financing proposals, this one is actually not quite as generous as as many of those, but still the controversy uh, is bubbling right now. And as we speak on Thursday morning, it looks like the budget is not going to be on time. This is one of the probably half dozen big issues that is still floating out there. Not perhaps as controversial as uh, tweaks to criminal justice changes, including bail, but still it's a it's a very hot button issue. Certainly, especially if you have a lot of Buffalo Bills fans in your life as well as I do. Well, as, as you know, I was born in that mighty city as well, even though I moved away when I was five. Yes, yes. A lot of, lot of ties to Buffalo. All right. Moving on to Albany news here. The former Albany Bishop Howard Hubbard, his pretrial deposition was released last week, and in it he had admitted that the Roman Catholic Diocese of Albany had systematically covered up instances of child sexual abuse by priests within that organization. Now, this week, the current Albany Bishop, Edward Scharfenberger, weighed in on that. What did he have to say? He said um, that obviously the the Catholic community in Albany and beyond is really suffering. He wrote, I know that I am not the only one who must deal with the reactions or the worry for a new wave of suffering for survivors and their families in the wake of the release of Howard Hubbard's deposition. And yeah, you're right. Uh, Hubbard uh, admitted that he had been aware of credible allegations of child sexual abuse. The priests, as in many other dioceses across the country, were in many cases sent off for treatment and then allowed back into the diocese or shuffled off to other dioceses, where in some instances they committed new abuses. Uh, Hubbard was questioned by attorneys for the plaintiffs about why, if he had been informed that a child had been abused or a child had been raped, he did not call the police. And he answered in rather legalistic fashion because I was not a mandatory reporter. And I think that quote, that rather legalistic quote, really uh, was one of the most uh, alarming in the deposition. But there's, there's a lot to dig into there, as Brendan Lyons laid out in our story, which was posted um, at the end of last week. You know, Scharfenberger has uh, really tried to reach out to the victims of clerical abuse uh, in Albany and elsewhere. He, you know, uh, has been put into provisional control of the Buffalo Diocese, which was definitely among the worst in the state in terms of um, being hit for not only abuse, but also its handling of alleged abuse cases. What remains to be seen is whether or not the diocese will take any kind of new legal strategy as it tries to defend itself from these cases, because this is obviously damning testimony from the former bishop. Yes, and we've had some stellar reporting on this uh, over in the recent past and over the last couple of years. So head on over to timesunion.com to check that out. 
All right, one final story I want to touch on. Uh, the case of Anna Sorokin, the fake heiress who masqueraded as Anna Delvey, uh, has been in an ICE facility, right, in Goshen, New York, for a while. And there were some developments in her situation this week. Do you want to give us an update? Yeah, she's actually not. It's a federal prison, not a oh, right. uh, not an ICE facility at Orange County Correctional um, down in Goshen. Now, she had been uh, slated for deportation to Germany. She has been cooling her heels in federal housing since her uh, 2019 conviction on theft, grand larceny, all related to her kind of cutting a swath through high-end youthful hip circles in Manhattan and basically fleecing everybody dry. But it looks like now she will get a little bit more time in uh, beautiful upstate New York to contest her potential deportation. She does not want to be uh, sent back to to Germany. Indeed. And according to our reporting as well, she has been honing her skills as an artist. So I think this isn't the end of what we'll hear about Anna Sorokin's adventures in upstate New York. All right, Casey, thank you so much for joining me. And we will touch back with you next week. Go Bills. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. Okay, time for a field trip. Picture this. You're walking eastward in Albany. The Capitol and the Empire State Plaza are behind you. You're heading down the hill toward the Hudson River. When you get about halfway there, you reach a very historic thoroughfare, Pearl Street. It's a 4.5-mile stretch that cuts across the city from north to south. It served as a main artery for commercialization and a gateway to the city for decades. Some may even argue centuries. The stretch of road is one of the oldest settled areas in the city. It runs through or by several of the city's hotspots on the National Register of Historic Places. Among them, the downtown Albany District, the Pastures, and the Cherry Hill House, General George Washington even once walked down Pearl Street. He was on his way to visit his pal, Philip Schuyler, in 1783. The Pearl Street of today, though, looks a lot different than it was in the 18th century. In 2022, it's essentially two streets, North and South Pearl, and they might as well be two different worlds. On the North side, it's a bustling city center, ablaze with businesses, restaurants, nightlife, and a 15,000-seat arena. On the south side, it's more residential, but also pockmarked by vacant lots, ramshackle buildings, and it gets a bad rap as a hotspot for crime and poverty. Recently, reporter Shayla Cologne delved into the history of this corridor in a series that we are calling the Pearl Street Project. It's a six-part series taking a look at the history of Pearl Street and how it evolved into the starkly divided worlds of North and South that it is today. She and I took a walk down Pearl recently to talk about it. Okay, so kind of maybe just start out by explaining to us where, we're, where we are and where we're walking. Sure. So right now we are on Pearl Street across from the MVP Arena, previously the Times Union Center. If we went up just a little, maybe perhaps one block, we would be at the technical division line of North and South Pearl, which is State Street. 
and we are walking down towards South Pearl and about, I wouldn't even say it's a full block, it's about half a block away. You can see the South Mall Arterial. The South Mall Arterial is an elevated highway that connects Interstate 787 to the Empire State Plaza. Its thick concrete piers tower over cars and pedestrians beneath. Together with the roadway they support, they cast a permanent shadow over everything underneath it. As we said, State Street is technically the urban grids dividing line of North and South Pearl, but psych psychologically and culturally, everyone believes that it's right past the arterial that you see the difference between North and South Pearl. So it's just a very striking divide, you know, like you can't get around it. You have to cross under it. You hear it, you see the traffic over it. It's just like looking back here, like it's like if you look north toward North Pearl, it's just very um, downtown city life. Mm -hmm. And then if you turn around and look south, it looks like a completely different world. I, I find Pearl Street fascinating because it shows a difference in neighborhoods. South Pearl, we get this more residential feel where people are sort of like if you go down to the barber shop, here we are right on Madison and Pearl. There are people hanging out and they're talking about the neighborhood and things that are going on. But if I went up to perhaps the Pearl Street Diner on North Pearl, it's more of workers just sort of getting a quick bite and then running back to work into one of these really tall buildings. The area that we're in is the most popular in terms of traffic. Uh, you got a lot of state, local, and county workers. Anthony Mitzios owns the Pearl Street Diner on North Pearl. He recently spoke to Shayla for her reporting series. Hopefully things will become like they were many, many years ago, like in the, the 50s, and there's more stores, there's more grocery stores, a gas station. And I'm going back to, I'm going to say about the 50s, because that's when we really start to see some major changes on Pearl Street. And it's because this idea of urban renewal sort of took hold of the street in addition to other parts of the city. Urban renewal first came about in the U.S. in the Federal Housing Act of 1949. The government essentially gave cities money to buy up their, quote, slums and redevelop the properties. Albany's hallmark urban renewal effort was the construction of the Empire State Plaza. And it was that which sealed Pearl Street's current fate. As the story goes, Governor Nelson Rockefeller got the idea to build the government complex in 1959 during Princess Beatrix of Holland's visit to Albany. Purportedly, he was embarrassed by the appearance of the streets around the capital, Construction on the South Mall Arterial was the first step in his plan, and it all began in 1962. And his generosity in recognizing the combined labors of so many who tried to make this one of the most beautiful capitals in the world. And I think, frankly, standing here today, we could even say the most beautiful capital in the world. Thank you very much. And after about years of building these monolithic structures, we saw a division between Pearl Street where the south end of it was cut off from the rest of the city and uh, businesses fled. So the commercial corridor that was once humming with activity died down. 
and um, just really struggled to sort of pick itself back up again. Once we cleared the South Mall arterial, Pearl Street became much more quiet. The thunder of the commute over the arterial died down a little. One of the first things we saw as we continued south from there was the shell of an old McDonald's. And they've uh, painted a lot of murals on it um, that symbolize Black Lives Matter because this is a uh, very diverse community here. And uh, it was actually this, the setting for where a lot of protests happened over the summer after uh, George Floyd's murder and um, the shooting involving Breonna Taylor. Remember your roots. It's gorgeous. And there's these roses that are kind of coming up through the concrete. It's a really powerful symbolism right there. During the 1960s, Pearl Street saw an exodus of the Irish, Italian, German, and Polish immigrants who had been settled there. At the same time, there was an influx of people of color, some of whom were escaping the Jim Crow South. And as a result, when they stayed and made this their community, we saw really discriminatory practices along the lines of redlining that impacted their ability to grow and grow the community alongside of them. But as time goes on, we see them sort of rebuild a little. There are some businesses here, but what mostly took hold of South Pearl Street were social service organizations. And uh, we get into this a little uh, during the series, but the Capital City Rescue Mission has become a, a very hot topic for those living in the community, just because many value the services that they provide for those in need, but at the same time can see where that may deter businesses from wanting to set up shop right next door or on the same street. Granted, some of the things that are happening in front of the mission, like loitering. And it's, it's so strange to see that because when you look at North Pearl Street today, over the decades, they were able to survive a little better and maintain their commercial district. And when you speak to people, yes, it is disinvestment because of practices like redlining, but also a large part of it is simply scalability. And what I mean by when we say that is just the size of the buildings. We said earlier South Pearl Street's more residential and it's because the buildings on South Pearl Street are smaller. They're more brownstones, just places that you live in. Whereas those on North Pearl are massive. They're office buildings with it looks, I'm looking at one right now, and I'm going to say at least 10 floors. and 20, Maybe 20? Yeah, maybe more. And so they were able to adapt more because of those building sizes. I think the beauty of this neighborhood is it's maintained its character as a place of family and a place of community, right? I think that's a beautiful thing. Trayvon Jackson is president of the Blue Light Development Group. His organization's aim is to help develop public projects in Albany. Jackson also runs the African American Cultural Center on South Pearl, and he spoke to Shayla for the series. I think the strip of South Pearl from Madison going down to Ferry and Morton, it's almost like you're playing a game of Monopoly, right? Or those little rugs we all used to have as a kid with the cities on them. There's an elementary school, a firehouse, a police station, a community center, soon to be a grocery store. You have all of these key elements of what we view as a healthy community. And I just encourage people to walk through the neighborhood, 
with those lenses and see the potential in a place that already exists. We don't have to keep reaching to build things that aren't here when something this beautiful is already in place. Jackson has led the charge to open a community grocery store in the former McDonald's site. Through a partnership with outside investors and local elected officials, the African American Cultural Center was able to raise enough money to purchase the building. Plans for renovations and securing food suppliers are underway. There is, as of yet, no opening date. And I think when you look down Pearl and you think of it from a planning context, you see a lot of buildings and projects chasing the money instead of chasing what people need. Far be it for me to act like the only people struggling are those in the South End. There's no grocery in downtown, period, right? So even if you want to live in one of these pretty new places, you still can't get food. <laughs> As Shayla and I wrapped up our walk along South Pearl Street, we took in some of the architecture. A lot of the buildings on Pearl Street, you can see their past in them. And then as you look up the street too, the buildings are so colorful. Yes. You've got oranges and reds and purples and yellows. It's really beautiful. It is, yeah. And I can't wait to see what takes hold of Pearl Street. I know that there are a lot of local people working on it. I spoke to a mini mart owner a couple of weeks ago and he's telling me how his cousin bought the vacant building next door and they plan expanding their store into it uh, and I believe renting the top two apartments so it'll be a mixed use but still very exciting. I know it took a lot though for them to sort of get together the money to make that purchase and uh, yeah, it should be interesting to see what comes of it. But that's just a small example of all the things that are happening here on Pearl Street. It's, uh, it's going to take time, but I believe little by little, it, yeah. it'll be what it once was, if not better. Now, there's a lot more to this story, so go check out our Pearl Street project over at timesunion.com. After the break... Dr. Tom Little was killed in an ambush in a remote part of Afghanistan in 2010. To work in a place like Afghanistan, you, you have to expect the unexpected. Don't be surprised by the unexpected. But not before he spent 30-plus years working to help bring eye care to those in the embattled country. We'll talk to filmmaker Dan Swinton, who made a film about the life and work of this Delmar optometrist. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. An optometrist from New York, Tom Little could have pursued a lucrative career. Instead, he was guided by his faith and he set out to heal the poorest of the poor in Afghanistan. In 2011, President Barack Obama presented a posthumous Medal of Freedom to an optometrist from Del Mar, New York. His name was Dr. Tom Little. 
Yesterday, the Taliban claimed responsibility for killing a team of foreign medical workers in northern Afghanistan. About six months earlier, Little and a team of nine other foreign aid workers had been ambushed and shot dead on their way back to Kabul from a medical mission to provide eye care in a remote part of the country. The Badakhshan massacre, as it came to be called, was one of the deadliest strikes against foreign aid workers in the Afghanistan war. It was Dr. Little's life, though, rather than the circumstances of his tragic death, that intrigued filmmaker Dan Swinton. His new documentary, The Hard Places, probes the legacy of the optometrist who spent 30 years living and working in Afghanistan. The Hard Places is premiering at the Albany Film Festival on April 2nd, and I recently spoke to Swinton about his journey in making the film. I want to kind of start where you started, you know, like how did you first learn about Dr. Tom and why did you decide to make a film about him? So I learned about Dr. Tom when I think pretty much everybody else outside of his immediate circle uh, learned of him, which was when he was killed on August 5th, 2010. It was in the news and it was a national story the following day. Um, he was a guy who was originally from Albany, so it was local. Um, I was living in Albany at the time. And and then, yeah, it was on all the major networks and everybody was talking about uh, this horrible massacre that had happened uh, in the wilderness of Afghanistan. I immediately began to ask a lot of questions, which is, you know, the first and most obvious one I think a lot of people ask is what was this guy doing in the wilderness of Afghanistan, you know, in the middle of uh, a hot war where there was an insurgency, where it was not safe for foreigners, you know, what was he doing out there in the middle of nowhere with these other aid workers? And um, so that begins kind of a little bit of a obsession for me trying to learn what I could about this guy. And there really, there really wasn't a lot that was out there. Um, And so yeah, I just thought somebody needs to tell this guy's story. Now, without giving the film away, obviously, um, give us uh, a little bit of what his story is. So Tom Little uh, was born in Claverick, New York, and uh, grew up in Kinderhook. He was the son of a pretty upper middle class, you know, maybe even say wealthy uh, optometrist. And uh, he eventually married his high school sweetheart, Libby Brown. And uh, Tom really sort of um, discovered religion um, in his later teens, early 20s. And uh, although his father would have liked for him to become an ophthalmologist like he was, um, he decided to go off to seminary. And it was there in seminary that he met uh, a man um, who had to work with hippies, actually, in Afghanistan. This is early 1970s. And uh, basically what was happening in, in Afghanistan was there were a lot of hippies that were traveling from Europe down to India, and they would get kind of stranded in Afghanistan for various reasons. They would have problems with money, or they would end up in prison. They would end up hooked on drugs. Afghanistan being a very conservative place, um, you know, they would off this countercultural group of people who were traveling through the country at the time often ended up in trouble. And so um, this guy Floyd McClung that that Tom met in seminary actually was running sort of a like a Christian hostel in Afghanistan where they could pick these people up off the streets or go to get them out of prison and then um, could offer them medical care and, you know, could really try to um, help them with whatever their problems were. 
And what ended up happening was, um, was that the Soviet, uh, there was a coup, and then the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. And one of the first things the Soviets did was really shut down the flow of all these hippies going through the country. Um, so that sort of ended Tom's reason for being there. But in the meantime, he had gotten connected with this one uh, NGO that was there, non-government organization that provided eye care. Um, it was a, a hospital there. And because he just coincidentally had had this experience of, of doing optician work in his father's practice as a kid, he decided he was going to stay and he was going to try to do whatever he could in that situation. He was just a person who was deeply affected by the needs and the suffering of other people. And so he just decided that that was what he wanted to do. And, um, and that decision really resulted in, you know, the beginning of this 30 year legacy that he had there. So tell me more about your filmmaking process. You, you went to Afghanistan to shoot some of this. So tell me what was that like? Yeah, it was really an incredible experience. I met with Libby Little for the first time um, a little over a year after her husband had been killed in Afghanistan. We met in Del Mar just in, uh, over coffee, and I talked with her about this like germ of an idea that I had to try to tell um, her husband's story and, and by extension her story. We talked uh, and she had concerns and we sort of worked through those issues and you know she eventually agreed to do an interview, but it, it did reach a point where and I don't know if it was to try to see how serious I was or, you know, how far I was willing to go. But Libby really was the one who said, if you really want to tell this story the right way, you really need to see where we worked for all these years. And she was in the process wow. of making some plans herself to go back over there to visit some of the projects that that Tom had been involved with and to visit friends and, you know, really just to continue a process of grieving that she had not been able to do in America because it just wasn't real in the same way as when she was there. Tom is buried in Afghanistan. And so she wanted to go back and visit his grave and talk to people who really knew him and understood what their lives were like. I don't know why I keep wanting to come back, but I do. Because I don't believe there's anything there other than bones. I know he is alive. So uh, we did. Wow. We did eventually go over there. I was there for about two and a half weeks. Was this before the Taliban? Yeah. So this was. So this was actually in 2013. So it's been quite a process to get to where we are today. So. But at that time, there was an active insurgency in Afghanistan, and. Um, yeah, even even while we were filming, there was an assassination of a, a family member um, of someone in the Afghan uh, government. And we went out on the streets one morning to go do filming and our whole street was was blocked off with military folks because they were worried that, uh, you know, the family members of, of that politician who happened to live on the same street might be targeted in a subsequent attack. So, I mean, we definitely saw all the evidence of, you know, war that was going on there. But but it was also very yeah. real because you know, we were able to travel so freely. And um, yeah, we're really um, welcomed by the Afghans that we met and we're able to see a lot of his projects. And uh, so, yeah, it was just an incredible experience. 
So this is going to be a pretty exciting moment for you. This is the first time it's ever been shown publicly. Is that correct? Yep. This is going to be the first time right in Albany. So um, we wanted to do it for several reasons uh, because it was close to Tom Little's hometown. And there are a lot of people who know him. And I wanted those people who were uh, closest to him and his family to have the opportunity to see the film first. So that is why we chose this venue. And uh, yeah, I'm really, really excited. And um, in some ways, it's really intimidating because these are the people who knew him best. And so they're going to know if I get things wrong with the film. You know, they're gonna be <laughs> the toughest audience. After it premieres uh, this weekend, where where do you hope uh, the film goes? So for right now, um, there's no plans to broadcast the film. We're only going to be doing festivals with it. And this goes back to um, the security factor is that the world is much more connected. And so we don't want to put a target on anybody, any of the Afghan doctors or staff who are still working in Afghanistan by just having it sort of free floating on the Internet um, mm. or on a streaming platform or, you know, even broadcast over the air. So we're only going to be doing closed screenings at festivals or private venues you know, anybody else who wants to host a screening of the film that we can attend, uh, we would love to do that. That's really sort of the goal. Um, and to hopefully have conversations around uh, the film and discussion. Certainly the current climate of the world right now definitely makes this film seem very relevant <laughs> for many reasons. Yeah, I mean, I worried because it took so long to finish that the film would feel less relevant. Um, but really, in the last year, I think everything that has happened over in Afghanistan that we all witnessed on the news, for me, has only made the story even have greater relevance because, you know, Tom was able to operate in Afghanistan for 30 years through multiple governments, multiple regime change, um, different humanitarian crises. And, you know, he just had a different way of working. Um, and it's one where he was willing to stay for a long time, invest very deeply and personally in the country. And I think that that's, you know, um, in contrast to, you know, what we saw recently when there was a regime change and basically everybody pulled out. Um, that's the time when Tom would have stayed. And that's the time when, you know, there's still a huge humanitarian need in Afghanistan. So whether the film inspires somebody else to follow in his footsteps, I mean, that I don't know that that's going to happen per se, but I think that people keeping areas of the world and troubled areas of the world in the forefront of their mind and not forgetting about them the moment the next you know international crisis comes along. Um, you know, everybody on social media is posting little Ukraine flags, and of course, you know what's going on in Ukraine is incredibly important. But you know, I hope that people don't forget about Afghanistan and the huge needs that are there, and really the sacrifice and determination that's needed to make a difference. Uh, long term in a place like that. The Afghans have a phrase that really is nice. You know, when you talk about the future, now I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, we're going to go here, we're going to go there. But then they always add, Agazenda Budim, if I'm alive. The Hard Places premieres at the Albany Film Festival April 2nd. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. 
or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. And a special thanks this week to Casey Seiler and Shayla Cologne for their contribution to this episode.